1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello. Welcome to New Books and Music, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Bradley Morgan, and I am joined today by my guest, Richard Aquila. Richard is a professor emeritus of history and American studies at Penn State University, the former host of NPR's Rock and Roll America, and the author of several books. His latest book is Rock and Roll in Kennedy's America, a cultural history of the early 1960s, and is published by Johns Hopkins University Press. Richard, thank you for joining me today. My pleasure. Can you share briefly with us what your book is about?
1: Yes. uh, Basically, the book zeroes in on the time period from the early, let's say from 1960 through and including 1963, and closes with the coming of the Beatles, which totally changes things, obviously. Who were some of the defining artists of this period? Oh, wow. What we're talking about for that time period. In fact, this is one of the interesting things too, Bradley, because one of the reasons why I zeroed in on this time period is because once I start mentioning the artists, people go, oh, yeah, yeah, that person was good. That person was great. And otherwise too many people have bought into the myth of the day the music died that comes out in um, American Pie by Don McLean uh, with the death of Buddy Holly and the Big Bopper and Richie Valens in 1959. And what I I set out to do in this book is to explore that time period to try uh, to get at it in terms of what was it really like. And the results are this shows that Rock and roll not only thrived after that uh, after Buddy Holly's death in 1959, but it was probably one of the most important and innovative eras in American history. What you're talking about for that time period, if you take a look at uh, different styles of rock and roll in r b influenced rock and roll, you have people like uh, Gary U.S. Bonds hits it big in the early 1960s. Jimmy Soul is another one uh, who has several hits in the early 60s. All of the Motown artists, everyone from Mary Wells uh, to Smokey Robinson and the Miracles and the coming of Marvin Gaye, uh, Barrett Strong, who most people don't know quite as well. But you're talking about excellent music coming out of that era. Uh, In terms of. uh, country rock. You've got artists, not just like Elvis Presley, who who clearly was a pioneer in the 1950s. And in the early 1960s, he starts heading more toward pop music uh, and does lots of Hollywood movies. But you have other artists during that time period who come out of the same kind of country background. People like Brenda Lee, Roy Orbison, stand of mind there, who are excellent. Um, pop rock, which is in many cases, I think, undervalued by many people. You have uh, artists coming out of there who have, you know, th- these were, were primarily young people. We're talking people in their late teens, early 20s, people like the traditional teen idols like Frankie Avalon Fabian, Bobby Rydell all coming out of Philadelphia Bobby V comes out of North Dakota uh, and offers a different type of sound uh, Gene Pitney is another one of these individuals, comes out of the East Coast, out of Connecticut. I mean, some really good performers, but yet there's this uh, a bad rap for some of these artists that they were contrived. Uh, some historians, uh, Ruby Garofalo uh, wrote a book where he deals with it, and he calls that music schlock rock in the early 60s. And that kind of sticks in many people's mind, and they tend to dismiss these these teen idols, but in many ways, these teen idols, as far as their audiences were concerned, were authentic rock and rollers. So it kind of depends, I guess, on the, the listener and how they're perceiving the music. But clearly there was a variety of uh, hits during this time period and artists who were superb. So we'll explore some
0: of those artists and genres more specifically later on. But I want to kind of set up the context socially and culturally surrounding that music prior. So it's the early 60s. The children of the baby boom generation are now entering high school. What was life like for an American teenager at that time?
1: (laughs) First, let me say what you just mentioned is really a significant point, because what we're talking about is for the early 1960s, this is the vanguard of the baby boom generation. The first group of baby boomers hit high school in the fall of 1960, just as John F. Kennedy is elected president. Then throughout their high school years, over the next three to four years, what you're going to find is these teenagers are going to basically come of age at the same time Kennedy becomes president of the United States and his new frontier programs are expanding. and. To answer your question, for teenagers during that time period, the music provides extremely interesting, non-traditional historical evidence that indicates that most of these teenagers were anything but rebellious. They bought into the consensus behavior of the time. They were part of the culture of the Cold War during the early 1960s. They were extremely patriotic, extremely religious, and supported the so-called traditional values of that era. And... They believed, you know, when John F. Kennedy talks about ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country, many of these teenagers buy that. And many of these teenagers are thinking of going into careers, uh, becoming school teachers or becoming, uh, you know, joining the Peace Corps and things like that, because it's a way of giving back to society. And what's very different to understand, and I think it comes through loud and clear, no pun intended, in this book, is that these teenagers of this time period and America of this time period is very, very different from the United States of the late 1960s or 70s or the 1980s and 90s or today. I mean, today, it's far more polarized in this country. Today, its people are far more cynical And today, you don't find the kind of consensus behavior that you had in the early 60s. Back then, as Kennedy was talking about, there are these new frontiers everywhere. And everyone in the country just about is buying into this. The notion was, we shall overcome, whether it's in civil rights or whether it's women's rights, which is just starting to pop up during these years, or whether it's anything else. The notion was... The 20th century was going to be the American century. There was nothing the United States could not accomplish, including winning the space race against the Soviet Union or any other problem that came about. And it's that kind of a notion that powers America during those years. And rock and roll of that era clearly shows that the music endorsed those types of attitudes. So you were saying
0: about how we live in a very divisive time and polarizing time now. We see evidence of that most recently with the debacle in the House and the electing of the of the speaker. But you make a case in your book that rock and roll was thriving in the early 60s, and it became the foundation for later trends. But these innovations and foundational elements that later became these trends were overshadowed by the civil and social unrest happening at that time you know we had a lot of uh you know racial issues a lot of uh women's issues and on the surface level it might seem you know kind of similar in a way but there's something that's deeper down that's fundamentally different about what was happening then versus now and i want you to kind of explore that a little bit further
1: i think in the early 60s Going back to what I said earlier, there was a sense of optimism. There were problems, obviously the major problems with civil rights, where when Martin Luther King Jr. and the Southern Christian Leadership uh, Conference begins marching in various places, whether it's Selma or Birmingham or some other place, there's a tremendous backlash on the part of white racists and uh, leading to all sorts of violence in those areas. But, and this is the difference, I think, there still was a sense of optimism on the part of Martin Luther King Jr. There still was a sense of optimism on the part of civil rights workers, that they truly believed that, using that quote again, we shall overcome, that we can bring the type of uh, principles that the United States stands for to everyone in this country, that it could be done. It's optimistic and it could be done in a nonviolent way. It could be done uh, in a way that people can achieve their goals. And still the notion was, we're not, these are not revolutionaries. These are people who believe in the American dream and they think they can accomplish it, whether it's people involved in civil rights, whether it's American youth talking about the future or whether it's any type of political issue that's involved there in the time period. That takes a rather dark turn by the late 1960s when Martin Luther King Jr. is replaced by the rhetoric of We Shall Overcome is replaced by the rhetoric of Black Power, the rhetoric of Malcolm X, the rhetoric of other individuals, uh, Stokely Carmichael, who all wanted to take it to a different level. They no longer believed that you could bring these things about peacefully. And it's that that comes crashing down, I think, that sense of innocence, that sense of optimism, that we can achieve what we're trying to do in a peaceful way and everything's going to be great. And for a brief time in the mid-1960s, you do have, uh, as rock music begins to change, after the coming of the Beatles and after the, the coming of the counterculture by 1966, 67, people are talking about a summer of love, going to California, wear flowers in your hair and everything else. And the idea was people could come together and they could still bring about peace. By 1968 sort of a nightmare year in American history, violence replaces that optimistic outlook, whether it's in civil rights or any other kind of culture war that's being waged during those years. And everything comes crashing down. And arguably, we've never been the same since because of many of those culture wars that began in the late 60s and early 70s, we're still fighting today for that matter. But it's a very different zeitgeist that is a mood of the country in the early 60s as compared to some of these later decades uh, leading up to today and where we are today in a very divisive, dark mood in America.
0: And and that's such an interesting topic, and we're going to circle back to it later towards the end of the conversation, Um, you know. So to stick to the music that was happening at this time and it's happening during a time when there's a lot of violence and civil and social unrest that's racially motivated, rock music as an art form was also facing some serious challenges by the 1960s, one of which was the payola scandal that was designed to hurt competitors in the music industry. But another one was that a lot of artists from the 50s couldn't stay relevant and they soon quit performing. And I want to know why it was difficult for these rockers to make the jump into the 60s.
1: Well, for many of them, a, a, a lot of them, I mean, obviously with some of them, they were no longer on the stage. I mean, I, I mentioned Buddy Holly and Richie Valens earlier on. Uh, death takes the, the them, them out of the equation, certainly. Others... By the early 1960s, some of the founding fathers of rock and roll, people like Chuck Berry. Chuck Berry's facing uh, legal charges by the early 1960s of uh, statutory rape and ultimately winds up in prison for most of the early 1960s. Jerry Lee Lewis from the 1950s is going to be basically blackballed out of rock and roll for marrying a 13-year-old cousin. And this happens to many of those artists. And also at the very same time that some of these older artists are falling by the wayside, newer artists are going to emerge in some ways who are going to, I, I don't want to use the word replace, because clearly their audience is going to be different in some ways. But their music is going to be outstanding in different ways. and. Chuck Berry's songs by the early 1960s in some ways felt somewhat dated, and the reason it felt dated is because some of the, the the innovations that were taking place in the early 60s, everything from coming out of the Brill Building in New York City, where they were introducing uh, different types of instruments that were totally unheard of before in rock and roll. Violins, cellos, and so forth, uh, timpani drums. I mean, all of these kinds of things were very different uh, hitting rock and roll in the early 1960s. And in some ways, those, that earlier music that was done by some of those pioneers just sounded dated. It, wasn't, it was no longer in step. And I think one of the things, too, that, that comes into play here is by the early 1960s, the young audience for rock and roll is a different generation. It is that baby boom generation. It's no longer those teenagers. uh, That is the young people who became teenagers in the early 1950s through the mid 1950s. This is the generation that hits in 1960 in terms of entering high school, like I said earlier. And they wanted a different sound for, for their generation. And they're thinking about this. In some ways, looking back, it's the second rock and roll generation that we're talking about that hits in the early 1960s. And so the times are changing as far as the music is concerned uh, for technical reasons, uh, in different types of instruments and everything else, but also because the mood of the country has changed. I, uh, John F. Kennedy the youngest elected president at the time, 43 years old. He, he uh, replaces as president Dwight Eisenhower, who was the oldest president in American history at that point. And if Eisenhower had this grand, grandfatherly figure, John F. Kennedy had this young image you know, great hair, good looks, young. Played touch football with his brothers, uh, and had young, y- young children in the White House. It was a totally different mood, and the music, as anyone who's a music fan can can tell you, music does reflect the times. It reflects the mood of a particular era, and as that mood changed in the early sixties, the music was changing as well
0: talking about Kennedy's profile then it's very interesting because when we think of Kennedy now that really hasn't changed there's a lot of elements in the, in the Kennedy family tree that is not looked upon as favor- favorably as as John part of that may have you know be a representation of progressive martyrdom you know looking back in hindsight but still viewed very positively while you write in your book that the music culture of that time, music writers consider it very watered down and you counter that it's not watered down. It's thriving. Why do you think these music writers have overlooked this period, despite, you know, a unifying figure that has represented a particular idea that has held true or, you know, something to aspire to for several decades.
1: That's, that's a fascinating question uh, when, when you look at what's going on. Something I can't answer in 25 words or less, but let me, let me stay as close to that as I can. Uh, what happens is the change that occurs... And I guess the the argument I would make, you know, here I am talking about how great the music was in the early 1960s, which leads to the obvious question, is it so great, then why does it disappear so quickly? Why is it discredited so quickly? A lot of that, I would argue, is because of the changes going on in the country. We're talking about something in terms of the musical changes that is not going to be Evolutionary, but it's revolutionary when the Beatles arrive on the scene. That what we are talking about is prior to 1963. Well, let me in fact let me date specifically prior to November 22nd, 1963. The artists on the rock and roll charts or the the Billboard pop charts were almost 100 percent American, born and bred. The notion was rock and roll was an American sound. Only Americans could sing rock and roll. And anybody who came along who was not an American, the idea, as far as most American teenagers in the early 60s was concerned, this wasn't authentic. I mean, these people were faking it. They were essentially not real rock and rollers. All of a sudden, that's going to change when the Beatles arrive on the scene. And the Beatles arrive in the United States within two weeks after the death of John F. Kennedy. Let me put this in perspective in terms of how dramatic the the change is going to be. Early Early in 1963, the Beatles attempt to try to make it in the United States. They work out a deal with Swan Records, which was a small record label, independent record label that came out of Philadelphia. Swan was owned by Tony Mamorella and Bernie Binnick, who were close friends of Dick Clark. And Dick Clark's American bandstand during those years used to feature uh, a weekly segment called Raider Record, where they would basically uh, there would be a panel of teenagers from the audience, three or four kids. And Dick Clark would play a new record for them. The kids would listen to it. And then afterwards, they would rate the record anywhere between one and a hundred. hundred being really great. Sixties uh, and seventies, not too cool. But they would rate that record. And the cliche that comes out of that is if they really like the record, they, they t- those teenagers might say, that's got a really good beat you could dance to. I give it a 95. And then everybody would want to listen to that record and they would start listening to the record. So Clark agrees to debut the Beatles on Raider Record, on American Bandstand. And during that time period, uh, American Bandstand was still a ritualistic we watched by teenagers. The song that Clark plays is a song that you might have heard of. She Loves You, right? (laughs) And that song, they play it. Clark then turns to the kids on the panel. He says, well, what'd you think? They hated it. They said, it's a terrible beat. We don't like those harmonies. It's a very strange sound. They gave it a 73. Basically mediocre. This is in early 1963. Now, the, the, the kicker here was Swan Records had an exclusive at that point on the Beatles. All they had to do was sell 50,000 copies of She Loves You, and they would get permanent exclusive rights to all the Beatles records that would be sold in the United States. And Dick Clark, after the Beatles hit, Dick Clark uh, calls up Bernie Binnick and they're talking one day. And Clark says, you know, Bernie, why why didn't you at least buy 50,000 copies of, you, of the record yourself? You would have been multimillionaires at this point. And Binnick just shook his head and he said, you know... When you played them on bandstand, they got panned by the kids. We thought we had a stiff in our hands, so we never did anything with it, and we lost all rights to the Beatles. Now, that's early 1963. By late 1963, as we now know, the Beatles become phenomenal superstars in the United States. Beatlemania breaks out by January of 1964, and... Uh, It totally changes everything in music. And what you're going to deal with at that point is what you're going to find are many of those artists, big name artists who had been mainstays on the rock and roll charts in the early 1960s. People like uh, uh, Dwayne Eddy, who was an instrumentalist during those years, Uh, Brenda Lee. Also, major star during those years. Fats Domino, another one of these major stars during these years. All of those artists that I just mentioned during the early 1960s had at least 20 or more top 40 hits on the Billboard charts. After 1963, they have zero hits on the rock and roll or on the Billboard charts. What we're talking about is instantaneously the music changes, the tastes change. I interviewed Bobby Rydell and he was talking about how quickly it changed because he was one of these artists in the early 1960s who had lots of hits. And Rydell told me, he said, look, I had, you know, over 20 top 40 hits in 19, between 1960 and 63. And then after the Beatles arrived, I couldn't get booked anywhere. Nobody wanted to listen to my music at all. And it was the same story that was repeated time after time. And the important question there is, why does this happen so suddenly? And to that, I would go back and look at the trauma of John F. Kennedy's assassination. What it does to the United States, what it does in particular to this teenage audience in America after november 22nd 1963. let me introduce something in here i think that might help explain it somewhat at least as far as i'm concerned back in the 1950s a cultural anthropologist by the name of anthony fc wallace uh wrote a seminal article where he describes a model what he calls cultural revitalization figures And what Wallace says is throughout history, there are times when a society is no longer functioning, that the culture is on decline, that the culture is no longer fulfilling the needs of the people living within that society. And it's at that point where people feel downtrodden, they are depressed, pathologies on the rise in many cases, that all of a sudden a figure usually a charismatic figure appears on the scene and the this charismatic figure can deteriorate the the the, the decline of that culture and revitalize that culture and wallace argues that you could find throughout history different individuals who fit that model. And specifically, he names people like uh, uh, John uh, Wesley in Methodism. He names uh, uh, actually... Uh, Jesus Christ fits that model, that with the declining uh, Jewish culture and everything else, all of a sudden, here comes Jesus Christ, revitalizes that culture, introduces new elements to go along with the old elements, and what's born is a new religion out of that, according to Wallace. But you can also apply it to politics, which he does. Uh, Vladimir Lenin in Russia, the Russian Revolution, checks what's going on in Russia, and the the culture is reborn and the Soviet Union emerges out of that. I would argue that the Beatles are examples in popular culture of somebody who appears on the scene as this teenage culture is on decline. Teenage culture. Many of these American kids had never had to deal with death prior to this, unless it was a grandparent, perhaps. But yet here on November 22nd, 1963, the unthinkable occurs. This larger-than-life young president is shot down in the streets of Dallas, and kids were traumatized. I can remember where I was when that happened. I was was in high school at the time, and over the PA system, I don't know if if you had a PA system in your high school when you were growing up, but in in those days, that's how we would get announcements from the principal. Uh, they would come on the PA system and make announcements about what's going on. And I'll never forget. Uh, this was the last period of the day. All of a sudden, I could hear the PA system click on in the classroom that I was in. I was in a math class, and I was sitting there. Nobody was talking out of the out of the speaker. But you could hear muffled crying in the background, in the office. And everybody in the class kind of looked at each other. We didn't know what was going on. And for me, I mean, think of the date, 1963. uh, Over the previous couple of years, we had been through the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, the the Berlin Crisis, and other things that appeared like a nuclear war was imminent. And first thing that went through my mind was, I thought there was going to be a war. All of a sudden, the principal of the school got on the line. And the principal, who was an ex-Marine, really sort of a tough guy, his voice was choking. And he spoke very hesitantly. And he said, "I'm, I'm afraid I have to tell you some very bad news. The president of the United States has just been shot in Dallas. We don't know what's going to happen yet, but we are all praying for him and school is going to be dismissed right now. I want you all to go to your school buses or go home and uh, let's hope that everything works out fine for the president. And I'll never forget when he then signed off, I remember walking out into the hall. I looked down the hallway they're looking down the hall. You know you know the way a typical high school is? Lockers on both sides of the hall. Kids are slumped against the lockers crying. They're sitting down on the floor. Nobody knew how to deal with this. And then we get the shortly thereafter the news that Kennedy had actually died from the assassin's bullets. And for the next few days... Everybody was like walking zombies all over the United States because people didn't know how to cope with this. It's that type of trauma that hit these teenagers that might help explain why all of a sudden, within a couple of weeks, the Beatles are going to hit in America And what'll happen is, here are the Beatles at a time when teenagers are quite distressed about the trauma of Kennedy's death. The Beatles' sound was optimistic. It was bouncy. They were irreverent. They were funny. They dressed differently. Their haircuts looked like nothing anybody had ever seen in the United States before. They offered American teenagers a new identity and new hope At a time, they needed it most. So what I would argue is that Beatles were not just normal rock and roll stars. They transcended that. They were cultural revitalization figures. And that's why there was that devotion to the Beatles. And Beatlemania is going to be very different from Presleymania for all sorts of reasons. And what you're going to find is this certainly... Helps explain, even later on, when John Lennon is shot and killed, the reaction on the part of many people was the same kind of trauma because they were mourning not just a rock and roll star, but a culture hero. And I think that's what's making all of this different and why that music changes so rapidly after the death of John F. Kennedy.
0: That was really fascinating to listen to. And, and I was thinking about a lot of ideas while you were talking about that experience and hearing about Kennedy being shot over the PA system. You know, it's, it's really fascinating to kind of observe a person's first encounter with generational trauma and then their relationship with music around that. It's which is an incredibly fascinating thing. And there's something that happens every couple years where it just, that comes out and you see how the culture responds to it. You know, for me personally, I, I came of age for nine 11 and the fallout from that with the, um, you know, the war in Iraq and Afghanistan. And that, that left a huge impression on me. I imagine in, in ways that, you know, you would have, you know, very similar ideas and feelings that you would have experienced at that time or others, you know, who would have experienced, uh, you know, the end of the Vietnam War, the you know, the 70s or even Columbine. Um, and your book does that so very well, drawing these ideas, because we were talking earlier about how music writers kind of view this period as very watered down music. But even at that time, you write that rock and roll was very much viewed as a fad and that a lot of marketing was done to kind of just push this new and improved product on some, on, an. On an audience, you know this era of Mad Men thing, and you draw deep explorations and connections between that music and the economic and cultural trends of Kennedy's America, such as the push, for racial integra- uh, the push for racial integration before the Civil Rights Act in 1964. And and I want you to kind of speak more about those kind of connections the, between the economic and the marketing elements driving the culture and politics.
1: Okay. Um, that In fact, that's an excellent example uh, in terms of civil rights and what's happening to race relations during those years. And one of the things that I found fascinating as I was looking at this, I went through the, the record charts just to see if some of the you know, the, the the first notions I had could be supported by the facts when you look at the charts. And what I found that was rather interesting when you're looking at uh, black artists and opportunities for blacks in the United States in the early 1960s. In 1960, uh, African Americans represented about 11% of the nation's population. Yet, if you look at the pop charts... Uh, during that time period, 30% of all of the artists who were scoring top 40 hits were African-American. By 1963, it had risen to almost 37% of the hits were done by Black artists, which suggests that there's far more opportunities emerging for African-Americans, not just in popular music, but all aspects of American life during that time period, the civil rights movement is beginning to take hold in the United States. And it's leading up to eventually the passage of the Civil Rights Act in 1964. uh, And even the year prior to that, Uh, The March on Washington, which has a tremendous impact as uh, hundreds of thousands of people show up at the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C., with Martin Luther King Jr. giving his I Have a Dream speech, and other individuals, including Peter, Paul, and Mary at the time, uh, performing singing Blowing in the Wind, Uh, Joan Baez performing singing We Shall Overcome. I mean, there's the the music's intertwined, and a lot of times we think in terms of just the folk music during that time period, but it was far more than that. I mean, what we're talking about, going back to what I said about the numbers of African Americans making the charts, what that meant was for young teenagers during that time period, regardless of skin color, they were seeing far more black faces. Uh, on television, or at concerts than ever before. And it was changing things as far as how the audiences were responding. As I was doing this book, uh, one of the things that I found fascinating is, if you look at some of the early African American artists who were making the charts in the 1950s and early 60s, frequently, they're images were not placed on the album cover because the record company was afraid in most cases that if the white teenagers who were the vast uh, majority of those buying these record albums if they saw black faces they wouldn't buy the album or their parents would not allow the album in the house and uh Shirley Owens of the, who was the lead singer of the Shirelles, named after her. In fact, Shirley, uh, the Shirelles were a good example of that because their record company did not want to put their image on that record label, or uh, excuse me, on the album cover. And Shirley Owens later said, "I understood that perfectly. I didn't agree with it." She said, "But I understood that because we wanted to sell record albums." And so they, don't, they didn't do that. Even Motown Records, in the very beginning, Barry Gordy did not put the images of the artists on the album covers. It's not until they hit it big that he began putting their images on the album covers. So, I mean, just in very subtle ways, rock and roll and the music aimed at the youth culture is beginning to change things when it comes to that. And it's not only the images on the album covers, but think about the rock and roll tours of that time period. Unlike today, where sometimes it's one performer or one group that simply goes out on tour. You know, Bruce Springsteen is a good example. Uh, Springsteen doesn't need someone before him or after him. He goes out there and performs for 10 hours or however long his concert's going to be that night. Uh, it, It wasn't like that in the early 60s. They were building on what the model was in the fifties. And that is you would have a, 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 tour package that would include black artists and white artists, males and females, different types of music. Uh, each group would perform anywhere from one to two or three songs, depending how many hits they had. And then they'd sit down and the next group would come down uh, and they would perform on the stage. So if you're sitting in the audience, regardless of your skin color, what you're seeing on the stage is an integrated group, integrated concert. And many of these performances were occurring sometimes in the South, where the audiences, uh, because of laws of segregation... Audiences would be segregated. There'd be a rope sometimes going right in the middle of the theater. Whites on one side, blacks on the other. Or in other cases, blacks up in the in the the upper area or down in a basement. And, and you know, never the twain would meet, basically, is what's going on. But rock and roll subtly is beginning to change all of those things during this time period, as I point out in the book.
0: I really liked that reading about the, uh, what you were just saying now about black women not appearing on the cover of their own albums until much later. And you said in your response that it was rather subtle. I don't think it's subtle at all. It's it's kind of fascinating because these, these music writers who view this period as very watered down, we take for granted the presence of black women in art. I know there's a lot of issues now in terms of representation and a lot of systemic um, problems are getting resolved and addressed that way. But when people view this period in hindsight, and they don't, they see it as, you know, kind of ubiquitous or not as revolutionary as the case that you're making in your book. I tell them, you know, think about a lot of the representation issues we have with LGBTQ, a lot, you know, in terms of controversies um, regarding how, uh, you know, trans jokes, Dave Chappelle making trans jokes, or uh, drag queen Story Hour, and how there's a massive response to this from people with traditional values, from more conservative backgrounds, and then it gets turned into influence, um, whether it's at school boards or, you know, other kinds of community organization meetings, and then evolves into legislation on the local level, state level, and then theoretically on the national level. But that was also happening at that same time when these young Black women were finally being on the cover of their album. So it's kind of hard for me to understand how people
1: don't see the connection. Yes. And and again, that underscores how different America is today as compared to back then. There were certain things that people took for granted back then, uh, just the way there are things, I guess, people would take for granted today, too. But it is a different world. Uh, it, It was fascinating to write this book because it really you know, for the years that I was writing this book, and it took me four years to complete the book. During that time period, I immersed myself in the music of that era. I immersed myself in terms of the history and what was going on. And I, I, I mean, my experience as, a, as an historian, I've taught courses dealing with the 1960s, and US social and cultural history. And from my perspective, what was fascinating is I was always I trying to hit a balance between what was going on historically and what's going on sometimes in terms of the perceptions of people. And I always tried as I was doing this to try to put myself into the the same perspective as individuals of the early 1960s and what their attitudes were. Uh, this came through also In many of the the interviews that I did, uh, Dion, uh, who was a a rock and roll pioneer in the 1950s, lead singer of Dion and the Belmonts with hits like I Wonder Why, uh, Where or When. And then in 1960, he goes solo and becomes a superstar as a solo artist uh, with hits like Run Around Sue and The Wanderer. And Dion, in the interview I did with him, it was a fabulous interview because he was extremely articulate, talking about what was going on with the music, but he can also plug it into the times, too. And we were talking at one point, and this is getting a little off the point, because rather than race, or let me shift gears for, for a second and talk about gender. Because as we were, we were dealing with this, I was asking him about some of his songs, uh, Run Around Sue. And I, and I basically said, look, Dan, here, here you have this song, Run Around Sue, and in it you, you warn guys to stay away from girls like Run Around Sue because she runs around with every guy in town and she's going to put you down and your life is going to be destroyed and everything else. Your very next hit was The Wanderer. And this time it's the male who's running around. It's the male uh who's doing all these kinds of things, exactly the same with the way the woman was doing on Runaround Sue, but yet you glorify the wanderer, the male. He could do these things, but the woman run around Sue cannot. And he just kind of you know laughed embarrassingly and he said yeah yeah I know he said it's he said you listen to those songs now and yeah anybody who sings those songs including me sounds like a jerk because of those the 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 different approach to how I was treating males and females he said but you got to remember in the times it fit the way those stereotypes were in terms of people. And that's what he was picking up on. And I think the same thing is true here. When you look at this in terms of race, and and again, picking up on Dion and one of these quotes from the book, uh, Dion remarked that his band, on all of those hits that he was doing in the early 60s, the studio band, these were black musicians. He, they were talented sax players and guitarists and everything else. And Dion said, when I did a movie, there's no way the movie company was going to use black musicians backing up a white singer. So they put in white replacements who either lip synced in the background or pretended they were playing their instruments because the movie company knew that there's no way in the South were they going to get bookings for the film if it showed an integrated band. So yeah, things, things were different back then. And Dion's story about that band, uh, runs across the gamut of many of these artists during this time period. Uh, Bobby V, one of these so-called teen idols from the early 60s, is a good example. His backup band, many of them were renowned Black musicians, people who later become part of what was called the Wrecking Crew in Los Angeles. Uh, uh, Earl uh, Earl Palmer on the drums. Uh, he used Red Colander on bass. I mean, these were expert musicians, many of whom had played behind Little Richard on some of his records in the 1950s. But here you have this squeaky clean image of this uh, teen idol, Bobby V, and it's it's in keeping with the dominant look of which was white male in the early 1960s. And so people listening on the radio, they had no idea they were listening to black musicians. All they knew was Bobby V was this white teen idol and they liked that sound. So yeah, they, things, things change. So Richard gender comes up
0: actually quite a bit throughout your book. You know, you we were talking about girl groups earlier. We, you made a reference to Beverly Lee of the Shirelles and you tell a great story about her playing the first integrated show in Alabama. And, The book isn't just about girl groups you discuss a whole wide uh, array of different genres such as folk doo-wop country and even novelty records with the same level of in-depth detail that we're talking about with with girl groups but i wanted to kind of still focus on girl groups a, a bit because of the when we think about things from an intersectional feminism perspective you know especially the role that black women are playing You write about girl groups saying that they offered fresh information about social change in Kennedy's America as they were songs that targeted the first wave of baby boomers and that the rising popularity of girl groups was introducing female perspectives into rock and roll. And I wanted to get a sense of specifically how that was happening with black women who are the ones most impacted by America failing on its inherent promises kind of driving that more so than a lot of the others.
1: One of the chapters of the, uh, of the book where I'm dealing with girl groups, primarily black girl groups, although there were also some white girl groups too, uh, picks up on a song by the Shirelles called What Does a Girl Do? This is in 1963. And the lyrics to that song... Uh, rather, rather interesting in retrospect because the question they're posing essentially is in every social situation that they talk about in the song it's always the males who lead the way the males, for example, ask the girls out for a date the males are the ones who uh, can ask them to dance the males are the ones who propose Uh, The males are the ones who always initiate things. And essentially what the Shirelles are asking is, you know, what does a girl do? If a girl wants to do all these kinds of things, what can they do? And what you begin to see in early 60s rock and roll are some exceptions to that where – females regardless of skin color are taking the lead mary wells is a good example on motown records uh mary wells uh had a song called you beat me to the punch and in that song she's the one who takes the initiative and dumps her boyfriend before he had a chance to do it to her uh in a in a follow-up hit called two lovers even the title with a woman singing this two lovers, the implication was, well, what, what is this all about? Well, it turns out, uh, she, she's kind of putting the guy down. Uh, and she's, what she's saying is I have two lovers and she's talking to her to the boyfriend and basically he's both lovers. Uh, he's schizoid on the one hand, he treats her nice. On the other hand, he cheats on her and everything else. Uh, but she loves them all the same is what she sings. Um, uh, the Marvelettes, Beachwood 45789, You Could Call Me Up and Get a Date Any Old Time. I mean, these songs are, are coming out there showing young women sometimes are the ones taking control of, of situations. Uh, Leslie Gore, who hits in 1963, is another good example. Probably the the, the, the best example you could use during this time period uh, were Leslie Gore uh, with a song she records in 1963, You Don't Own Me, which becomes a major hit and becomes a, uh, an anthem for not just women's rights later on, but also for gay groups as well. Uh, and basically that puts forth this message that for Leslie Gore... She was going to be the one. Uh, She didn't want the guy telling her what to say or what to do. She was going to do what she wanted. I mean, those kinds of songs are out there. And what I found fascinating sometimes is you line this up with history, and what you find is Leslie Gore records You Don't Own Me in 1963. That's the same year Betty Friedan's A Feminine Mystique is published which usually is viewed as the seminal work for the rise of women's rights. And women talk about having a click moment when all of a sudden they read Betty Friedan's uh, uh, Feminine Mystique. Well, Leslie Gore is also giving young girls during the early 60s a similar click moment when they're thinking that maybe things aren't supposed to be like this, that they can improve, And Leslie Gore becomes a hero to many young girls during this time period for that reason, along with some of these other performers I talked about, too. You know, so much in the very same
0: way that we're talking about how music writers or audiences today might view this uh, music as very watered down, you know, for Dan's The Feminine Mystique. I, I read that. Um, you know as kind of like a historical document kind of thing and even now some of the ideas present in that information when you viewed through the concept of presentism is um you know it, it it's, it's it's amazing how not just music but other elements of the culture and even in your book you talk about film as well exploring you know some of these ideas in in film and other artistic arenas beyond music just how for some reason there's a short shelf life here that gets, you know overcome by what's to follow after kennedy's assassination
1: yes gets overshadowed completely uh in one of the interviews that i did uh going back and this was with bobby v again uh i asked v about that in terms of the questions and v had 11 top uh, 20 hits including number one hit take good care of my baby in 1961 and bobby v said look there was a lot of great music in the early sixties. He said, but it's been forgotten. And he said, the reason I think it's been forgotten is because it's sandwiched in between the 1950s, which saw the birth of rock and roll and Elvis Presley and all those early rock and roll pioneers. And then the coming of the Beatles afterward. And so people just kind of forgot about us in the early 1960s. And, What's interesting is uh, one of my good friends that I've known for a very, very long time, I I was out to lunch with him uh, a few years ago. Uh, This is just when I was starting to write this book. And we were talking, and and this guy's always loved rock and roll music. And he said to me, he said, "Why why do you want to write about the early 60s? That's just such a, you know, pop, schlock, rock type approach during that time period there was no good music and i said what are you talking about i mean you of all people should realize and all of a sudden i said what about people like roy urbison u.s bonds all of the motown hits brenda lee connie francis i mean there are lots of good stuff coming out of that time period and he said oh yeah yeah you're right and then he backed off really quickly and he said, you know, you're right. There's, that was a great period. And I I think it's a combination of what Bobby V said that it was sandwiched in between these two seminal eras in rock and roll history, the, the rise of the music in the fifties and the Beatles and what comes after in 1964. That's a large part of the reason. The other large part of the reason, as I was hitting on earlier was Change occurs so rapidly in the United States in the late 1960s. All of of these events explode on the cultural scene when you're talking about the war in Vietnam, civil rights being transformed from a peaceful movement to black power and violence and riots in cities. The rise of the counterculture And the whole notion, don't trust anybody over 30, uh, that too starts out very optimistically until after 1968. And then depression sets in again because people begin to realize the change isn't happening the way people thought it was. And by 1970, when you look back at the early 1960s, it almost seemed like a quaint era. It was innocent in when you compare it to what happened later on. You compare, going back to John F. Kennedy's assassination, one of the reasons why that was so traumatic, not just for young people, but for all Americans, is because it was unthinkable. In order to get an assassination, you had to go way back in time in terms of American history and yeah something like that happened to Abraham Lincoln but John F Kennedy wasn't expected by 1968 unfortunately it, it's going to be just as devastating in some ways when we when we hear about an assassination whether it's Martin Luther King Jr or whether it's Bobby Kennedy but it was no longer unexpected The innocence was gone. Things changed. And the music of the early 60s, which was linked to that earlier innocent, at least in retrospect, innocent time in American history, that music was totally out of step with the mood of the country and everything going on in the United States, from the war in Vietnam, shootings at Kent State University, and everything else that was happening by the the late 60s and early 70s. So the history of the time period is greatly responsible for why people sort of turned away from early 60s rock and roll. It had less to do with the quality of the music than it did that the times were changing, as Dylan so aptly put it you know
0: one of the most fascinating aspects of your book is you explore the concept of myths um, in various ways and that's something that really speaks to me because i get fascinated with m- myths be- and how they influence cultural and social institutions and you know we're at a time now where a lot of um, institutions are being challenged and the inherent myths that those institu- institutions have been built upon are being challenged and taken down But in the 60s, there seems to be more of a common baseline as to what these myths are and what institutions we uphold, whether they're social, political, cultural. And some of the ones that you explore include like the the self-mythology of record labels like Motown or myths stemming from the limitation of the country's founding, um, such as the myth of racial superiority. How did cultural and national mythology play a role in the success or even
1: detriment of rock and roll during this time? tremendously I think uh, just just a couple of examples if you take a look at the rise of surf music which is an innovation in the early 1960s some great stuff with the Beach Boys and Dick Dale and the, the Deltones Jan and Dean were all part of that what was fascinating to me as I was listening to this, uh, listening to the music, and I and I, had, I had written about this previously too, uh, one of the areas that I always taught courses in, uh, U.S. social cultural history, including the American West, the mythic American West as, as well as the real West. And what struck me is surf music picked up on this myth, this mythic West that you have throughout American history. And the whole notion that you could find happiness out West, you can find spiritual rejuvenation out West second opportunities, uh, uh, a land of opportunity for people. All you got to do is head West, whether it's in the, the 1700s or the 1800s, or whether it's in the 1960s with the Beach Boys. I mean, it's that same mythic West that we're talking about. The, the myth of that West is the, the American West is portrayed as not just a land of opportunity, but as this almost dreamlike fantasy world that brings about happiness. And that myth is going to be distorted in several ways. I'm uh, The reason I'm laughing, I'm thinking of Jan and Dean surf city, two girls for every boy, right? Which tells you something not only about their, their myth of a Western utopia from a male perspective, but it also says something about gender relations during that time period. But This idea of the mythic West permeated all of that in terms of the rise of surf music, because surf music really picks up on that. And not just in that way, but one of the things that struck me as I was writing this book, all of the other things I talk about, all of the other different types of rock and roll on the charts in the early 1960s, you have a rise of black artists. They're becoming more and more prominent in every single case, except for surf music. Surf music was of all these different styles in the early sixties, the least diversity could be found in surf music. Very few women singers were singing about anything dealing with surf. Uh, very few blacks are ever going to be performing in bands uh, dealing with uh, you know a surf music group, it was the bastion of white males for a variety of reasons. Uh, some of which dealt with uh, the the practicalities of it, and that is California. Traditionally, this is going back to the nineteen twenties. The KKK was fairly strong in Southern California. And many of the restrictions against blacks were still in place at certain beaches in Southern California, making it more and more difficult for, for black young people to go out and go surfing because they weren't allowed on a lot of these ba- on these beaches, including in the 19, early 1960s. It doesn't change until later on in the 60s, by the mid and late 1960s, but not still in the early 60s. Same thing with, with some women. Not too many women surfers. Uh, the movie Gidget, uh, which comes out in 1960, 61, it's going to be a big hit, uh, picks up on the notion of a female surfer. And it's a really big thing because a girl can do this too. Uh, most white males sort of dismiss that. The idea was you had to be big and powerful in part because of the surfboards during that time uh, – up through, the, up through around 1960, 61, surfboards were pretty heavy, made of wood. And it's not until changes are made in surfboard technology that lighter surfboards come in. And so not just males, but females could also carry them around as well. So, I mean, there are other things going on, but I just found that rather interesting. But certainly the, the myths of the American West are evident there in surf music the myth of anybody can make it in the United States can be found in other ways uh, in terms of opportunity. Uh, I'm thinking specifically here of Gene Chandler's number one hit Duke of Earl. Uh, You know, I'm the Duke of Earl. And I I can remember still uh, seeing Gene Chandler perform the song on American Bandstand. He was dressed in uh, a tuxedo, tails, a top hat, carrying a cane, wearing white gloves, and strutting around uh, like he was the king of the world because he's the Duke of Earl. And the line in the song was, uh, no one can stop me now because I'm the Duke of Earl. Same thing with the Drifters hit on Broadway. The idea was on in that song, uh, people were telling him he couldn't make it and uh, he, as as a black man. And he talks about in the song how he's going to make it because he can play the guitar and he's going to make it on Broadway. He could make it anywhere because it's a land of opportunity, basically. And in fact, it's really interesting because later on, Neil Young, I forget the exact date, it been probably around 1988, 89, uh, does a cover of On Broadway. And it ends just the opposite of the Drifter's hit, back in the early 1960s. In the Drifter's hit, uh, the black man overcomes the problems because he has the skills and he can make it. In Neil Young's version, is much darker, showing how things had changed by the late 1980s. And in his version, uh, there's no success that can be found on Broadway. That the protagonist in the song is going to wipe out doesn't make it at all. Shows how the times are, have changed, again, from the early 60s through the 1980s in that case. I'm really glad you brought up the example of surf music
0: um, to talk about you know, the American myths. And there's a quote from your book I want to read, and it's, Early 60s rock and roll provided most members of the baby boom generation with similar perspectives and experiences, regardless of race, religion, ethnicity, gender, class, or neighborhood, They absorbed rock and roll images and messages that were in line with the era's consensus on behavior and politics. And what we were talking about earlier with younger music writers and younger generations, they might see that as validation that rock and roll was built on this white male adoption and as a reflection of that ongoing systemic racism and sexism, so therefore it should be relegated to the past. What is your response to that?
1: I I think... That, that suggests a total misunderstanding of the times in terms of the music and the, the culture and how things were operating back then, and... It, it it plugs into this notion of a presentist attitude that you sometimes cannot take these attitudes from today and try to apply it to different time periods because it is a different era and operates in different ways. Specifically, in terms of rock and roll, one of the biggest differences between music then and what we have today is how the music was delivered to the audience, That back then in the early 1960s, the way you heard rock and roll essentially was on top 40 radio or American bandstand. What that means is across the United States, whether you lived in Sacramento or Tallahassee or Sheboygan or Buffalo, New York or wherever it was, you were listening to the same top 40 hits. These songs become part of a generation. They can tell you. uh, That is, people who are now in their 50s, 60s, 70s, and beyond, uh, if they live through the early 60s, they can tell you the names of these songs. They they all know these songs. It's part of the collective memory of that baby boom generation. And frequently what I do sometimes is if I'm going out and I'm delivering a lecture to uh, a a diverse audience, uh, I'll start out with uh, just to see what kind of crowd I have there. uh, I'll, I'll start out with a little quiz. You know, I'll say, look, I'm a history professor. Let me throw a pop quiz at you here. And I'll play snippets of songs and I'll ask the audience to identify the song. And, I'll start out with songs that everybody knows, and then I generally will get more and more obscure as the the examples go on. But what has amazed me time after time is the knowledge on the part of these audiences who live through that era. They know these songs. They can tell you who the artist was who sang it. They could tell you the name of the song. The year it came out, they can tell you, in some cases, what the record label was like. And they could tell you the color of the record label. I mean, it's astounding the details they remember about these songs. This suggests the cultural importance of this music to that generation. And every generation, I think you can make the argument that every generation has its own music, its own songs that they can remember and you listen to those songs and music has a wonderful uh, uh, sense of time with it and it can transport you back to specific time periods just by listening to that song again and those songs are extremely important because what it means is that music that was those top 40 hits provide certain generational memories for that baby boom generation. And the, a lot of people, either reading my book, Dealing with Rock and Roll and Kennedy's America, or listening to one of my talks, they'll come to me and they'll say, time after time, Look, I've heard these records a gazillion times over the decades, but what fascinates me is what you're saying about the relationship to this song and the times. And we'll get talking about that, because I always ask them, what does it tell you? You know, take an example, the Shirelles' number one hit, uh, Will You Love Me Tomorrow, from 1961. What does that song tell you about gender relationships What does it tell you about sexual attitudes, how things have changed between then and now? So from that perspective, this music is a cultural binding force for that young generation, extremely important. And what's also important is it's not just being handed down from the top, uh, whether You know, it's not the establishment trying to show this are white males who are in charge. Far from it. This is bubbling up from the grassroots. What you have are songs that are being sung by teenagers, songs that are being sung by blacks, by other minorities as well as whites, songs that are done by men and women. I mean, it's quite diverse as far as this music is concerned. Uh, As I was saying earlier, when you look at the songs making the charts, by 1963, what we're talking about is a large number of African-Americans, disproportionate to the number of African-Americans percentage-wise in America's population, were making the charts. Same thing with women there are more and more women artists making the charts throughout the early 1960s. And if, if you want to look at diversity in the United States in the early 60s, you might not see it in some ways uh, in the political structure in terms of the people holding political offices, but you're going to see it at the grassroots level, whether it's music or whether it's changes going on in baseball in terms of more and more black players appearing. Or whether it's television, because on television, you also see the same kind of diversity emerging in the early 1960s. All of this is reflecting the rise of the civil rights movement. And by any stretch of the imagination, uh, this music is really connected to these teenagers during these years. It's their music, and it's saying something about the times. And it's just the opposite of what some individuals now might think, that the music was artificial being handed down from the top. That's not the case. And all of this, Bradley, if I can add this too, uh, add something else to the equation, and that is the entire notion of what it means to be an American. These things have changed over the years. If, if, if Had you asked someone that question in 1962, what does it mean to be an American? Their answer, they would not have any problems whatsoever answering that. And in general, they would state certain types of things that reflected the general consensus behavior of that time where white Anglo-Saxon Protestant males were probably in control. I know that, that sounds like a contradiction to what I said earlier, but I'm t- saying in general uh, what how they would define an American. And the music, the rock and roll of that era, doesn't necessarily reinforce that. In fact, it contradicts it, showing that diversity is starting to bubble up from the bottom during that time period. But I, I find... If you ask that question today, what is an American, it's much, much more difficult to answer for a variety of reasons. Many of those institutions that helped bring about their consensus in the early 60s, including Top 40 Radio, those things have fallen by the wayside. And every time one of those institutions is weakened, uh, there is, it does not have the... The, you know, it, it's, it's no longer as ubiquitous as it was in the early 60s. What that does is it splinters American society and culture. So it's much more difficult now. Uh, people now don't all listen to the same songs, don't all watch the same TV shows, watch the same movies. It's far more diversified in that sense. And on the one hand, it's good. But on another hand, it, you might argue... It, it, it kind of questions that whole notion of an American identity. So if we're no longer listening to the same things or doing the same kinds of things politically and believing the same kinds of things, what does it mean for our identity today as a nation? I mean, all of these things are rather interesting, and I think popular culture is a non-traditional source of history whether it's rock and roll or movies or TV shows or or books, it, it's a way of getting at what people are thinking at the grassroots level. Now, it's a very long-winded answer to your question, but I think it's very important to try to get at that uh, to show how popular culture is extremely important to understand in a particular time period. No, you're absolutely right. And
0: it's a, it wasn't long-winded at all. It's a very fascinating answer um, because I think about... This is the 60th anniversary of JFK's assassination. So Lee Songs came out 60 plus years ago. And we kind of see how you know at that time you write about the commoditization and marketing of this music and how it's a fad. But now, 60 years later, this music isn't really accessible on the radio. Maybe in some you know, markets you might have a you know station that has you know has that. But you you kind of have to seek it out. Otherwise, the way you come across it, it's it's in the most undignified of places such as like dancing, singing tchotchkes that you find at Walgreens, like singing fish or dancing Santa Claus. <laughs> yeah. So we see the extent of how these songs are continue to be commoditized in a way that it makes me wonder how their legacy
1: will evolve by the time they're a hundred. That's an interesting question. Um, And I guess extending that question, what you're saying is, does the music die out once that generation has died out, is what it comes down to. Potentially. It's
0: almost like this idea that, you know, the Beatles music, their melodies, you know, it's theorized that they will be nursery rhymes in several hundred years.
1: Sure. Uh, And again, that shows how culture changes in terms of these different things. Uh, One of the things, my guess, and obviously these are all just guesses what we're talking about here, is the music lives on in one sense because we now have this concept of the great American songbook and what the important songs are in American history. And these things sometimes are now enshrined either at the Smithsonian or other places. And many of these songs now uh, that we talked about from the early sixties or from the 1950s have become enshrined in that as some of the greatest songs in American history now. So, I guess this goes back to even things like Mark Twain. Uh, I remember a Mark Twain quote about that in, in terms of if you live long enough, you become an institution. And it's the same thing with these songs, that the songs, many of them will have longevity. They become part of that songbook. Other times those songs will be commodified and become throwaway, uh, the way you're talking about it, uh, and part of Chotsky's and everything else. That's going to happen. Uh, And many of the songs from the early 60s, obscure songs, have already dropped by the roadside. Uh, And in some cases, that's justifiable because they weren't very good. In other cases, uh, it's too bad because some of these more obscure songs are still kind of important today. I I mean, let me give you one, one example of a song that falls into that category. That's worth looking at for people, because again, this song not only says something about the music of the early sixties in terms of the quality of the sound. And I, I say it like that because I'm not going to make a value judgment in terms of these lyrics at all at this point, but, uh, the, the song was produced and written by Phil Spector, who for obvious reasons ran into pro- other problems uh, that kind of disgraced him later on. Uh, but it, it's written by Phil Spector and produced by Phil Spector. And it was done by an African-American girl group called The Crystals. And the name of the song was He Hit Me, and it felt like a kiss. When you listen to that song today, and that song came out in 1962, it was not a hit. It did appear on the Crystals album, which was a big hit. And the Crystals had had several hits. Uh do run run Till He Kissed Me, uh, He's a Rebel were some of their biggest hits. This song was on that album, which was purchased and became a best-selling album in 1962. So many people during that time period, if they were Crystal's fans, would have heard the song and were aware of the song. But the song, He Hit Me and It Felt Like a Kiss, dealt with spousal abuse, where this girl is talking about her boyfriend, basically, and it's hard to tell whether or not they were married in the song. but. What she says in the song, essentially, is he he hit me and it felt like a kiss. He hit me and I was glad because it showed he loved me because she had cheated on him and otherwise he wouldn't have been mad enough to hit her. Now, when audiences hear that today, they basically go, wow. The song, I should add, was not written. I, I mentioned Phil Spector. Spector didn't write the song, I'm Sorry, the song was written by Carole King and Jerry Goffin, two of the biggest songwriters of that era. And Carole King obviously goes on to become a a superstar in her own right as a singer songwriter. Now, what does it tell you about the times in terms of those kind of lyrics that are out there in terms of gender relationships? I mean, so what, and the reason I bring this up is because both obscure songs, as well as those, those well-known hits do tell you something about the times. And that's why I, I kept going back to an extent talking about teen idols, because even with the teen idols and they're in a lot of their hits, like Fabian, I'm a tiger. And, uh, Uh, Frankie Avalon falls into the same group with some of his hits. One might say that that's a perfect example of music that was contrived and not real rock and roll. Be that as it may, there were many young fans who absolutely loved Fabian and Frankie Avalon and other teen idols. And I can remember, this is going back several years now, um, I had gone to a concert, it was at a county fair, and a bus pulled up and the artists on the bus were some of these teen idols from that era, including Fabian. As they got off the bus, there was a crowd of men and women, all with gray hair, uh, who were about the same age as Frankie, Avalon, and Fabian and and some of the other artists on that bus. Uh, As Fabian got off the bus, and we're talking people at the time who were in their 60s or early 70s, some of the women in the audience started screaming when they first saw Fabian. And I thought, my God, this is like a time warp for me that I'm looking at that and I'm thinking how strange it is. But because for them, even though 50 or 60 years had passed, they still idolized Fabian. And I can remember in another interview I was doing with Bobby V, uh, who continued until his death a few years ago, he continued performing and would go out and, and sing to crowds. And one of the things he told me was, and this, he, he, we would have had this interview about five, six years ago, he said one of the astounding things to him is he'll go out on stage and he'll look out at the audience and he sees all of these gray-haired people in the audience who were his fans from the early 1960s. And he says, it almost brings tears to his eyes because here they are singing the lyrics to the songs as he's singing them. And they still remember the music and the times. Those songs are extremely important to that generation. So there are these, these cultural bonds that the music provides not just the music of the early 60s but i think you could say the same thing for music of different generations until you get to the point where they're no longer people are no longer listening to the same things then it's it's a different ball game now bradley who knows what's going to happen in the future uh with a lot of these songs because maybe they they simply don't reach the wide audience the way they did back then you know can you ever have another elvis presley Who commands the attention of the entire audience or the Beatles? It's an interesting question in that sense. So my question about the legacy was meant to kind of set up
0: this final question, you know, assessing these songs and how they'll continue to evolve in the public consciousness. And for me, from my perspective, you know, I'm in my mid thirties. I love these songs. You wrote a book about this. You love these songs. These are great songs. And, um, that's why I kind of feel like this is so undignified but what I'm kind of seeing is that yes these specific songs that were hits and were a common thread within this society at that time they may be kind of phased out but there's a there's a very committed audience there that loves the sound not necessarily the songs, but the sound. And we see a lot of kind of reissue labels make these um, compilations that compile based on like a region or studio. I'm thinking like Numero Group as an example, where this kind of music, albeit largely unknown and underrepresented, is finding a new life from that era, offering a varied perspective of this time period you're talking about in your book. And I wanted to get your sense about that kind of music, the music that was less popular, less driving the culture, but still sounding like it and finding new life in a way that these more
1: established songs are kind of losing it. Let me ask for a clarification on this. So are you talking about songs from the 50s and 60s and 70s or are you talking about music today i'm talking um, about the maybe a throwback to yeah. that so so the so the
0: specific songs that we were you talked about in your book you know the the beach boy songs the jan and dean Charells, okay. all these girl groups that okay. you know kind of seem like wallpaper music as time goes on you know you hear it everywhere and it just becomes that kind of background you know it goes from being big radio hits to you hear it at the grocery store because you know you know that's just how it evolves now it's in the tchotchkes at the walgreens or you know targets those kind of things but there are independent labels that are releasing um, albums that compile unknown artists from that same time period of the, of Kennedy's America that find new audiences because they aren't so ubiquitous as these more popular songs that defined that particular period because that's
1: what people were listening to. Okay, okay, I got you. That's a really interesting question. Um, I, I think there will always be an audience for quality music. Um, it may not be. As broad as it once was, but yes, it'll it it will ha- it will find an audience if it's good music, and I think what we're we're talking about really in that sense is if you think about other eras, you know, big band music, let's say from the nineteen forties, there are people today, people in their 20s, 30s who love that sound uh, and they'll listen to Glenn Miller and a lot of these other things from that big band era because for them it's quality music and it's the same thing with rock and roll from the 50s and early 60s that it the the there will always be an audience for it, it won't be as broad as it was and I think what happens with rock and roll is rock and roll starts out As sort of a, you know, a a subgenre of popular music, when it first begins, it's not the dominant form of popular music. It displaces the dominant form of traditional pop in the 1950s, and it ultimately, as that baby boom generation grows, rock music. Well, rock and roll transforms into rock, which allegedly is far more artistic by the late 60s and 70s. And the audience will become larger and larger. And ultimately what happens is rock and roll, a.k.a. rock music, becomes a dominant form of popular music by the late 1970s and beyond. And then, if I could continue with that, uh, the irony is it then reverts to being sort of less dominant and a sub-genre within popular music by the 1990s and as we move into the 21st century. But it will never go away uh, that what we're talking about, it was a Danny and Jr. said, rock and roll will always be, it'll go down in history is what they sing. And that was in 1958. And they hit it on the head from that perspective. And it does. It does. It's going to have lasting value, not just because of those big hits that people know, but also because of the quality music. If anybody doubts that, all they got to do is listen to the Roy Orbison catalog or Gene Pitney. If you want to hear some of the greatest operatic uh, rock music of all times, listen to those guys. And that sound is going to continue to exist, even though those guys have been dead now for a few years. That Roy Orbison, uh, and I describe in the book, his song Running Scared, and how he hits a high note at the end of the song. And that song, when you listen to it now, still will bring chills to the spine of the listener when you hear Orbison going through and the tension building that song and the release and the final moment of that song. Very similar to Gene Pitney, I'm Gonna Be Strong, where he hits that note at the end and it's a powerful note. And if if you're a music lover at all, you listen to those kinds of songs and you're wowed by it where you're wowed when you hear uh, early Stevie Wonder or many of these Motown hits that were coming out during this time period by Mary Wells in particular. So, yeah, it's it's quality music. And I think that that was one of the reasons, too, why I wrote this book, that I wanted to – I was reacting to this day the music died myth that the music doesn't die in 59. It's not reborn in 64. Instead, we're talking about an era of great music. And people who aren't familiar with it, or their only familiarity comes with some of the hits that have now become commercials on TV or elsewhere. uh, I strongly recommend that the they go back and listen to some of these songs of the early 1960s. This is good stuff in terms of the artists that we're talking about. And uh, these artists, even in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, unfortunately, relatively speaking, there are fewer artists from the early 60s than there are from other eras. And hopefully, uh, that's one of the reasons I wrote this book. I was hoping that people will read the book and they'll understand the quality music during those years. But yeah, it'll continue. Well, Richard, not only is this music good stuff, your book is great stuff. And
0: this conversation was fantastic as well. And I had a lot of fun and I I appreciate you joining me today. Well, thank you very much. My pleasure. My name is Bradley Morgan, and you've been listening to New Books and Music with my guest today, Richard Aquila. His latest book is Rock and Roll in Kennedy's America, a cultural history of the early 1960s and is published by Johns Hopkins University Press.